This week's podcast starts off with a comparison between two ADV class bikes, the 2021 BMW F900XR and the Triumph Tiger 850 Sport. On the face of it, these two machines are very similar, yet as we discovered, they're really very different. Nick DeSena takes us through the two of them and the surprising differences between them. If you're in the market for this style of machine, we'd be interested to hear which one you end up with and why. Our contact information is in the show notes, so please let us know what you think. In the second segment, contributing editor Neil Bailey introduces us to his Laverda project. Laverda is one of those storied Italian brands that sadly disappeared some time ago. But in the 1970s, Laverda was alive and well and some iconic motorcycles came out of the factory. Neil chats with me about resurrecting one of the very first motorcycles he acquired and the stories that are woven into the fabric of that machine. I hope you enjoy this episode. Alrighty, so what is it we're going to talk about today? The 2021 BMW F900XR and the 2021 Triumph Tiger 850 Sport. So why are those bikes similar? I mean, other than the fact that they're nearly the same capacity. Well, they fill an interesting role in that, uh, you know, when BMW originally presented the F900XR, they said that they were a sports adventurer, which is, you know, so much to say that it was an, an adventure-styled sport touring machine. And uh, with the Triumph Tiger 850 Sport, it's been presented as the road-focused uh, variant of the Tigers, so a touring adventure. So really it's sort of two sides of the same coin trying to achieve a more sport touring if we were to use the most traditional sense of the, of the uh, you know, motorcycle nomenclatures available to us. And um, you know, it's, uh, it's an interesting little category. So we thought we'd stack these two bikes against each other uh, because they're in you know, relatively comparable price points with the BMW, you're looking at a base price of $11,695. And with the Triumph, you're looking at $11,995. Again, those are the base prices, but they fill similar roles, achieve similar goals, but come at things from pretty radically different ends of the spectrum. Interesting, okay. Okay, what sort of, uh, what, do they have similar motors or, or at, what, what are the configuration of those? In terms of displacement, they are within earshot of each other. On the BMW, you have an 895cc parallel twin engine. And on the Tiger, you have a uh, 888cc triple cylinder engine. Now in the 850 sports um, uh, case in particular, this is the same T-plane, T I believe that's what uh, Triumph calls it. Okay the triple cylinder engine that is in their Tiger 900 lineup, the key difference and why it is actually called the 850 is that despite it fa the fact that there are no mechanical differences between the 850 sports engine and the 900 variants in the Tiger lineup, it has a detuned version of that same engine. So it actually makes a little less horsepower than the rest of the Tiger fleet. Now to that end, the Tiger claims that it makes 84 horsepower and 61 foot-pounds of torque. Meanwhile, the BMW creates 
on a claimed basis, at least from BMW, 99 horsepower and 67 foot-pounds of torque. So you have a P-twin in the BMW that makes a little bit more horsepower on the claimed dyno figures, and then the triple cylinder that makes a little bit less. But the twin produces more torque by the sound of it. Yeah, it does. Uh, six points more torque if you're looking at the spec sheet. Okay, so the, so the, the three-cylinder produces a little bit more peak horsepower, and the twin produces a little more peak torque. Uh, no, no, no. So the, okay. the, the triple cylinder engine produces 16 points less peak horsepower than the uh, BMW. But that's actually where things get interesting is, um, you know, comparatively, the spec sheet is, they're in the same realm. All right. But there's some pretty big differences between the two. And we always say, don't go by the spec sheet. I mean... Horsepower to me is, is a guide. It's all about, I'm going to be interested to hear what you say about how they actually work on the road. Yeah. You know, as, as a reminder to listeners, you know, spec sheets are an important guiding tool. Like you said, it gives us a reference point, but in all actuality, it's where the rubber meets the road. And that's, that's what counts. So, you know, with the engines in particular, they really couldn't deliver two radically different experiences if you tried. I mean, outside of just pulling in a four-cylinder <laughs> motor into this comparison to really, you know, throw it into the left, far left field. But, um, <laughs> you know, it, it's interesting because with the, let's go ahead and start with the BMW just for the you know sake of um, keeping up with the alphabet. But, um, you know, it's, it's a, a really mature and muscular parallel twin engine. Um, you know, it does have a really good amount of ample low end, has some really good mid range to play with as well. And then it does kind of peter off as you get into the, the upper, you know, rev range, and then it, it starts trailing with its power delivery. But what I really enjoyed about the BMW is that it's a very smooth motor. And that's something that we'll get to in just a second with the Triumph. But it's a very mature, smooth, like I said earlier, very muscular motor. It has the, that typical sort of uh, almost V-twin aesthetic to it with an added dose of refinement. You know, it's not as lumpy, um, but it's, it's a very tractable engine in that regard. Um, and it's, it's quite different from the triple cylinder, which revs up much faster um, and to, in my mind, it, it, it's actually the more exciting motor of the two. So while the triple cylinder engine of the Tiger 850 Sport might lose out on the bottom end right off the line, might lose out a little bit in the mid-range, when you really get into that upper mid section, probably about six, seven grand, the Tiger really starts stretching, stretching its legs and kind of runs away with it, despite the fact that it makes less horsepower or less torque it tends to be the more excitable motor. I mean, you can really just eat through the revs quickly because it just revs up at a much more aggressive rate. Now that is two different um, personalities that I'm describing completely. On one hand, you have almost the sort of stately butler personality in the BMW where it's, you know, <laughs> right. Mr. Reliable. He's got that good, that good torque for off the line, good, good mid range that you can use in the canyons. Whereas the Tiger is always kind of raring to go. And, um, you know, that's, that's sort of the difference between the two. Interesting. So the Tiger feels more aggressive slightly? I mean, I, I would say so. I'm not necessarily aggressive, but I would say it's more exciting because it, 
it's able to sort of chop through the revs at a much faster rate. I mean, uh, when we were riding the, these bikes the other day, it's it's just sort of the difference in how it spools up and gets into the power. It's, you know, the, the P-Twin goes through its revs, you know, predictably, tr tractably. Do you find you're having to stir the gearbox a lot more on the on the Triumph? Just because the, the motor's so willing like that? Um, I mean, you're kind of running out of running out of revs and like constantly going through the gears or? No, no, the, you have a, a really well-spaced ratio transmission. Um, so you're not just whacking through the gearbox constantly. I will say that you might be more apt to do that off the line, but really um, th this is something I did notice on the, the Tiger in particular. I found myself in fourth gear kind of an inordinate amount of time. So whether <laughs> I was in the canyons and actually you know, running at a good clip. I would always kind of shift above fourth gear and then go, uh, that's a little low, I guess. And then go below that and be like, eh, kind of needlessly high in the revs. And then would always just sort of settle into fourth gear. So really when I was in a relatively, you know, modest pace Canyon, not something that's super tight and twisty, I could really just settle in. And the same thing for the BMW as well. I mean, that's really the strength of that P twin is you sort of just pick a gear and speed that you're comfortable with and, you know, let the torque do its work. Um, interesting. Okay. And, you know, what's interesting between the two is I think you and I will both agree. We've always associated the triple cylinder engines from Triumph as being these ultra smooth machines that just don't give any sort of vibey tactile feedback. It's really interesting because this is probably the first modern triple cylinder engine from Triumph that I would say actually does give some, uh, uh, you know, vibration to the rider. Um, maybe that's something to do with the Tiger chassis, uh, you know, the ADV uh, sort of um, platform that we're talking about here. And it's something I haven't experienced with the speed and street triples in the past, but right. about six grand, you start to feel some, some vibes. It's not a deal breaker, but they're there. Absolutely. And that's where the, the parallel twin so it's not unpleasant, but it's definitely a bit, I mean, what is it like tingling at the bars or? Uh, I would say more foot pegs and then. Just sort of through the chassis kind of thing. Yeah, foot pegs and then a bit into the bars, but mostly in the foot pegs, that's when you, you really feel it. And then suddenly the sort of uh, ultra smooth kind of chunkiness of, of the, the BMW's parallel twin really stands out when in direct comparison. You're like, oh, okay, there's a huge difference. Right. Now, the other huge difference between those two motors is the gearbox. You know, with the Tiger, you have this really slick, clean, easy to shift, super, you know, light clutch um, lever throw. And it's just, as you'd expect from, from Triumph, which is, you know, a very, uh, you know, reputable brand, we shall say. They're pretty good with gearboxes, I'll say that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you know, so nothing to complain about in that regard. On the BMW, it's um, surprisingly stiff, not necessarily with the clutch pull, um, but the actual shift actuation. So it's a little bit difficult to describe because a lot of the time when we complain about gearboxes and bike reviews, we'll cite that something is notchy. And I wouldn't actually say that it's notchy, which typically means that the mechanical movement of you switching gear is just not as smooth as it could be. Right. Instead, I would say that on the BMW, it requires sort of uh, um, an uncommon amount of force to actually 
get it through the gearbox and that's on the up and downshift. Now, when I was really riding that bike aggressively, the engine's nice and warmed up. I was able to get the upshift pretty clean, um, you know, just rolling off the gas a little bit. So the old school style of quick shifting because there is no accessory quick shifter on this bike, but the downshift in particular, it's just, you know, pretty heavy handed. So you have to be really positive with your foot. then. I guess. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, positive is, <laughs> yeah, that's probably. You have to really be deliberate. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. You know, and I don't want to make it sound like this gearbox is, you know, like trying to open the vault door of a bank or something like that, but (laughs) it's just, again, in direct comparison to this tire, you're like, wow, this is a very stiff gearbox. And it's weird because Don Williams, editor of Ultimate Motorcycling reviewed the original F900R, which is the naked bike version of the same model and the F900XR. And I also rode both those bikes in close proximity to when he rode those, those models. I never experienced any problems like this and neither did he. And I'm kind of wondering if it maybe is just our bike or just a, you know, this gearbox needs to break in. I was gonna say, could it be a break-in thing? I mean, could be, um, you know, again, press bikes often have low mileage, especially if, you know, you're one of the first uh, publications to get hands on that particular uh, press unit. Um, so we'll leave a little asterisk next to the, the complaints about the gearbox, but that is something that you need to be aware of. It's a bit chunkier as, as far as shifting goes. That's kind of the bottom line. Maybe the BMW sort of gearbox feels okay. It's just compared to the Triumph that it stood out. Oh, absolutely. I mean, and I've had that before where, you know, so you ride a bike solo and you're like, oh, this is pretty good. And then you get on something else. You're like, wow, holy crap. Actually, this is a lot better. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, so maybe it might be just that it just isn't as good as the Triumphs. But anyway, okay. All right. Well, point taken on the gearboxes. So, uh, but otherwise, the, the motors, you really, you like the motors? Or is there one that you preferred? Or I would say the Tiger, even in its detuned state, because that's the point of the 850 Sport, is to take that, that sort of sporting edge off the typical 900 models, whether it's the Rally Pro or the GT, et cetera, et cetera, and give something that's a little bit more approachable for someone that might be stepping up from middleweight. Even in that context, I feel that the triple cylinder engine is simply more exciting. Now, that might just be me kind of being a rev happy person, but <laughs> right. I, I'm of the mindset that if we're talking about pure, just, you know, base human nature response um the tiger tiger engine is is a bit more exciting because it revs up you know very excitedly it's it's just happy to get up and going but on the other hand if you're riding if you're riding around town and you 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 know you're commuting or something perhaps the bmw is like eh, you know what? i just want to leave it in one gear and just let the talk talk do all the, the work for me yeah and there's definitely you know some advantages to that as well um I would say around town, the Tiger engine does admirably. And, uh, you know, to its credit, the BMW's uh, parallel twin engine, it's super approachable. I would say that its power band is just easy to wrap your head around almost immediately just because you have the power right at your beck and call the moment you release the clutch. And then you get into the thick of it with the solid mid-range, which, you know, again, that's where the two motors kind of uh, start trading off a little bit as you spin that that tiger engine up 
it gets better and better and better. Sans the buzziness that we mentioned before. Right. You know, really, uh, these two engines have some, you know, pretty pretty big strengths on each other, and then also some pretty noticeable weaknesses against each other as, as well. Interesting. All right. So uh, when it comes to chassis, these are, as you said, these are kind of ADV style bikes. So what's uh, I'm not down on ADV bikes, but I'm, I'm starting to question why. You know, we've got these street-oriented but ADV-looking bikes, and I'm fortunate in as much as I've got a pretty long inseam, but even I struggle to get onto these things. It's like, what's the point? Yeah, and that, that criticism, I would agree with when you're talking about the 1,000cc plus, uh, you know, sport touring, sport adventure. Actually, the only exception to that is the new Harley Pan, Pan America, which lowers the suspension when you stop so you can get on and off it. Correct. <laughs> so, so other than the Harley, I'm like, why? What is the point? Yeah. This thing's never going to go off road. Yeah. When you, when you have something in an adventure styled platform, naturally that's going to lend itself to either taller wheels, uh, you know, you know, going to say 19 inch front wheel, maybe even 21, if it's really pushing the ADV, you know, lineage or, you know, design ethos, but, you know, ADV bikes need ground clearance. And if you get ground clearance, well, you need to raise the bike up and that's sort of how it works. Exactly. The ADV styled sport touring bikes. And when I say that, I would sit, point at things like the BMW S1000 XR. Absolutely fantastic. Bike. Which the F900 XR is the little brother and then of course you know the the original multi-strata right you know right. an insanely capable <laughs> right. motorcycle for the road and um I, I would also say for the racetrack i mean i i rode the bmw uh, 1000xr a lot last year and oh my god i mean that thing is so capable it was absolutely fantastic but it had 17 inch wheels and in the end, I just got sick and tired of climbing on and off the thing. Yeah, it is like climbing onto a jungle gym. But other than that, that was my only complaint, literally my only complaint. But do these two bikes, do they have 17-inch wheels? Okay, so like the S1000XR, which I'd probably compare to, you know, like climbing up on a jungle gym every time you need to ride it, because it is tall. And <laughs> we're not short guys. I'm 5'10", which is slightly above the national average. And I'm still... Right. <sighs> hopping up on the, onto the saddle. Right. This bike is much more manageable. It's a you know, smaller form factor overall. So the, the key difference between these two models, and this will kind of cover all the bases, is that the F900XR comes at things from a position where it started at, or it started as, and then also was developing two different bikes. So you have the F900R, which is the naked sport bike version, and then you have the F900XR, which is the, you know, the sports adventurer per BMW's marketing uh, nomenclature. So you have something that is really focused and a derivative of a road-going motorcycle. And to that end, it has, you know, very common road-going uh, geometry in terms of its chassis and 17-inch wheels and a pretty average-sized uh, saddle height. Okay. To cite the specific numbers, you're looking at 32.5 inches. Parallel twin engine keeps things a little bit more narrow. So overall, it's it's pretty average in that regard. Okay, so you get kind of get the cool ADV looks without the ADV inconvenience. Correct. Cool. The Triumph? To solve the ADV inconvenience that you've uh, you know highlighted, <laughs> with the Tiger 
Triumph's goal here was to create a bike that I wouldn't say it's it's fair to say that it's entry level or budget. It is an entry level into the Tiger family. Um, and, you know, it is the budget version of the Tiger family, but by no means is it a budget motorcycle. Okay. We're still talking about sure. something that is just south of $12,000 and comes with some pretty heavy duty equipment to back it up. Nice. Um, however, unlike the BMW, which comes at things from a street perspective and a, a very heavy road bias, which we'll, you know, elaborate on in a second, this bike comes at things from an ADV lineage. And that DNA is extremely prevalent from chassis design, wheel size, so on and so forth. So for the Tiger, you're running a 19 inch front wheel, 17 in the rear. And, you know, it has, again, fairly typical geometry for a, an ADV machine. You have a little bit longer travel suspension, um, you know, longer wheelbase, Rake is a little bit tighter and trail is a little bit longer, but a key thing here is that with the Tiger, they've really focused on keeping the rider nice and low in the chassis. So you do have an adjustable seat that goes from 31.9 inches to 32.7 inches. Interesting. Although when you sit in that saddle, even in, in the high setting, the bike feels incredibly low. Um, okay. It, just it's not like jumping on your average off-road um centric adv machine which are tall again right an easy ground clearance in this case they've compromised the ground clearance and things of that nature just to make it a road going bike so while it does have some of the adv aspects baked into it it's not on that scale it really is a bike that a more you know, we'll say a shorter rider could get on and deal with and be pretty happy with right out of the gate. Nice. Okay. Sounds good. So yeah, moving right along. I mean, what's the sort of the handling like on these things? Yeah. So handling between the two, again, just huge differences. And that really plays into the, oh, really? the sort of lineage that we, we touched on just a second ago. Um, you know, with the BMW, you have 70, 17 inch wheels, you have a shorter wheelbase that's just about to hit 60 60 inches overall which is an, an 1.3 inches shorter than the the tiger rake is a little bit more extended but trail is significantly shorter um you know the fact is when you sit on the bmw the moment you even set out of the parking lot or into that first corner you go okay i have loads of grip at both ends i have michelin road 5 gt rubber on these things um you know it, it feels like a very typical sport touring bike you you have a much better connection i would say to the front and rear wheel you're also positioned a little bit closer uh you know over the front end so you can really pitch it into a corner and, and trust it in that regard um so you just get loads of confidence out of those 17 inch wheels and that more conventional sportier kind of geometry um, okay it's a bike that you can really muscle around and i would say you you can benefit from um, because if we're honest, it is a little porky. I mean, full of fuel, which is a 4.1 gallon fuel tank, it tips the scales at a claimed 483 pounds, which is not nothing. So, <laughs> all right. Um, How does that compare to the Triumph? You know, and 
you know, with the triumphs end, end of the spectrum, you have something that um, just doesn't benefit from that level of grip. It, it's still because of that 19 inch front wheel, the slightly slimmer profiles uh, of the tires that it's running the Michelin Anarchies, uh, Michelin Anarchy Adventure. Um, okay. You know, it just doesn't have that same level of confidence as you pitch it into a corner because you're, sure. you're really just not creating the same amount of mechanical grip at the end of the day. You know, no. um, beyond that, you have a, a little bit more travel in the front end. So with those sort of, you know, typical ADV dimensions, you do have to soak up the front end a little bit more, be a little bit more conscientious of fork dive when you get on the brakes and start trail breaking into corners. But realistically, in terms of just pure handling, I would say their agility is actually on par with each other. The core difference between the two is that the BMW feels just much more planted, whether you're tipping in, mid-corner, and exit. You're able to really trust the front end on the brakes, get into the corner, and then accelerate out, you know, with just as much gusto as you'd like to uh, add into the equation. The Tiger isn't of that same mindset. And that's something that kind of comes across the moment you get on it. You go, oh, okay, this bike isn't encouraging me to just ride quickly. I can ride at a more than modest clip all day happily. It's just not that type of bike. It's the type of bike that's sort of, uh, you know, friendly and welcoming, but not, it, it doesn't have that sort of sporty inclination that's always trying to uh, encourage you to have conversations with the CHP. <laughs> right. You know, it's, it's just a little bit more softer in every way. So the shock is a little bit softer. The fork is a little bit softer. It doesn't respond as well to, you know, those heavy bumps at, at mid corner because it's running a 19 inch front. Right. So, you know, in terms of just outright pace in the canyons, if you care about that sort of thing, then the XR is going to be more your style because you're a more sport oriented rider. Right. right. But if you're really trying to, you know, chug down some serious miles, the Tiger starts looking a lot better because it is softer all around. Interesting. Does it have adjustable suspension on the Tiger? So you could, so could you stiffen it up a bit if you needed to? No, and that's part of the uh, sort of uh, the downside to these bikes that are built to a little bit more price point positioning, right? So with the BMW, it's a 43 millimeter inverted fork, non-adjustable. So how it comes from the factory, which is significantly uh, heavier damped than the Tiger. And then, um, you know, in the rear, you have spring preload and uh, rebound damping. Again, right out of the gate, it's just, you know, sprung for the road and probably a little bit more aggressive riding. Plus the fact that it has to compensate for uh, its heavier weight. Now on the Tiger, pretty much the same story. You have a non-adjustable Marzocchi fork and it's actually 45 millimeter instead of 43. So pretty beefy fork. Oh, that's pretty beefy, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And then um, in the rear, you have a spring preload adjustable um, shock. So no rebound. Key point on both bikes, you do have a, I don't want to call it a remote preload adjuster because that's not entirely accurate, but adjusting the preload is not a typical lock and collar situation. You can just do it from a dial on uh, you know each bike. And that's actually something that's super convenient. So really that's more for just tightening up the preload when you put bags on it or passengers and stuff like that. Right. That's quite interesting because it, it it's, sounds as like a triumph, it, you know, in terms of motor, it's it's got that sort of, you know, sportier feeling sort of quick revving motor. 
and yet in terms of chassis it's sort of the other way around um correct so it's almost like you know you should God, we should swap out the motors in each one and it would be a lot easier to to characterize that bike It'd be like, okay, yeah. the BMW's got the sportier handling and this quick revving three-cylinder motor. And the Triumph has this, you know, talky parallel twin and the slower, softer, softer handling chassis. Yeah, and now that, that, would, that would make more sense, right? But <laughs> yeah, because yeah. none of this stuff ever does make sense. But yeah, so yeah, okay. All right, well, I, I guess uh, in terms of brakes, is there any huge difference? Oh yeah, there is. There, it's, uh, <laughs> again, not the way you'd think it'd go. Okay. When it comes to rotors, they're both running 320 millimeter rotors. Sure. We'll start with the P-Tiger in this case, because it's part of the Tiger 900 family, which comes with some really top shelf stuff. It has Brembo Stylema calipers. Sure. Now to keep the costs down, it is running a J1 radial master cylinder. Feel at the lever, uh, it's not all that great. So again, when we look at spec sheets and we look at the parts that are on the bike, we have to assume that these things may not perform to the expectations that we've put on brand names, because these are Stylema calipers. These are, these are on super bikes. <laughs> now, in terms of outright braking power, 100%, that thing will stop on a dime. You're golden. Feel, that's where the BMW absolutely takes the cake with, again, their Brembo branded front calipers. And that's about as far as BMW goes in, in terms of telling you what they are. But, uh, you know, feel and stopping power, it's actually quite admirable on the F900XR. Wow. So you have far more feel at the lever. You have a better understanding of sort of the braking limit. And I, I appreciated the braking characteristics on the BMW far more. But that does lead us into another kind of related conversation, and that's with the electronics. You know, to keep costs down, the both bikes don't have cornering ABS. There's no IMUs, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, in the case of the BMW, you can add those features, and that's sort of typical for BMW, where yeah, the base price is uh, eleven thousand six nine five, but if you want all that cool stuff, you're gonna have to pay for it, bud. <laughs> it does, and really, which of course everybody does want it. Going to a dealership and trying to get a bare bones BMW, that's probably not gonna happen. You're going to have to get a bike that has features, right. um, you know, added to it. So, and they're optional features. Right. Um, our press bike had, you know, some of the features baked into it, which are part of a nine hundred twenty-five dollar. Uh, package and that activates cornering ABS, uh, dynamic pro modes, and that allows you to adjust TC and ABS, and et cetera, et cetera. In standard trim, you just get the the normal road and in rain modes. So for less, so for less than a thousand dollars, that actually sounds quite well worth it. I would agree. I would also say that um, some of that stuff should just be in there. I, I do have a a bit of a problem for paying for the privilege to adjust my own electronics <laughs> knowing that all the equipment is there and i have to pay money to unlock it bothers me right um, yeah as a consumer especially if you don't really have the option to buy the bare bones one anyway correct i mean you and i were both in the yeah if you're sort of stretching to to afford one of these things yeah 
yes. you know, and you're going to go into a dealership and say, look, the maximum I can, I can spend is X. And they go, well, unfortunately, you know, we can't sell you that bike for that because we've unlocked all the crap on it. And, uh, you know, it's going to cost you an extra couple of grand. Yeah. BMW gets slagged for this quite frequently and rightfully so with a, 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 a close runner up by KTM who, if I'm being fair, although they do the same thing in, in terms of, you know, um, loading bikes down with options, at least they package everything into like just one, here's all the bells and whistles shebang price instead of like multiple packages that are really confusing like BMW. Right. So not to belabor the point, we obviously aren't a fan of the options BMW. Right. Please just put them in a bike and include them in the price. Your clients never cared anyway. Right. And don't give us this bullshit, you know, cheap price. The truth of it is, is the BMW is, you know, has quite a lot more options than the Triumph, but it's going to cost you an extra couple of grand. Correct. And there it, you know, and just that's the way it is. Exactly. Now, interestingly enough, the IMU sensitive features, you know, with cornering ABS and traction control, you know, riding on the street, whether I was using the traction control, you know, non-lean angle sensitive traction control on the Tiger or the lean angle sensitive uh, traction control on the BMW, I really didn't notice a difference because I'm riding on the street. It didn't cut in prematurely. And when there's a couple little sandy spots and some corners, they both did exactly what I expected them to do. So no fault there. Oddly enough on the BMW, I do feel that it's pretty conservative on the ABS spectrum. Um, it'll start kicking in, you know, over rough pavements. I, I would say it's pretty premature in that regard which is interesting because the tiger is using, you know, fairly antiquated electronics in that regard and uh, had no problems the entire day cruising around. So again, really pushing the limits of electronics on the street isn't something that I would advise to do. These are, you know, safety mechanisms and, uh, you know, trail breaking super deep into corners where you are triggering ABS, you know, it's probably better just to kind of reel it in <laughs> you know in the in the bmw's case there were some instances where abs was triggering and right it was well before i would have uh assumed that it would need to do so didn't make me run wide or get scared it was just one of those things where you feel it pulsing the lever and you're like okay, okay. take that out of the equation focus on the brake braking performance you know power wise the tiger has got it feel wise no, <laughs> not so much. That's where the BMW takes a kick. Right. All right. What about sort of, uh, you know, equipment wise? Do they come with bags? I mean, if they're being being marketed as sport tourers, are they equally appointed, you know, and, and what are they like in terms of comfort and ergonomics and that kind of stuff? Yeah, ergonomics is a huge difference. And um, a point that I made earlier is that the Tiger doesn't really encourage this sort of sporty vibe the moment you get on it. it it's interesting because the the moment I sat on the Tiger, I was sort of immediately comfortable. It was one of those bikes where it felt incredibly easy to ride, felt familiar. Nothing about it really screamed to me like, oh, let's go and just hammer through this canyon as fast as we can. It was like, no, let's just go and ride motorcycles, have a good time. And then we're also going to need to ride to work tomorrow and potentially, you know, do some touring. It, it just spoke to me as this very, you know, congenial well-rounded motorcycle right out of the gate just very well evolved by the sound of it yeah yeah I, I would say that you know and 
you know, it sits nice and low. You sit within the chassis. So you kind of hug this, you know, massive 5.3 gallon fuel tank gives you great range. I mean, you could easily get 200 plus miles out of it, depending on, you know, how spirited your riding is. So in terms of range, the Tiger is going to win out all day, every day. Now, when you get on the XR, that actually speaks to your sport, you know, you know, the, the devil on your shoulder, we'll say <laughs> you get on it. The rear the rear sets are a little bit higher. You sit actually a little bit more upright. However, your position's closer to the bars. So you have that sort of over the front end sporty feeling just right there. And that really does encourage you right out of the gate to kind of get on it and start having some fun. Now, the other thing is, you know, I mentioned uh, fuel consumption and fuel size with the F900XR, we have a 4.1 gallon uh, fuel tank. So that's 1.2 gallons less wow. than the Tiger. However, and what I, like I brought up earlier, it still weighs 483 pounds when compared to the Tiger's 475 pounds. So it has much less fuel, is heavier. And I would say that the Tiger utilizes fuel a little bit better. I mean, it- oh, A four gallon tank is- is sounds a little light to me i mean what's the range like on that are you are you running out of gas quickly or is it okay no i mean you're, it was pretty average in terms of fuel con consumption you know okay if you're really hammering then you're probably going to see high 30s if you're fairly average you know okay. into the 40s and then if you're you know extremely conservative with your throttle um you could probably get into the 50s pretty pretty easily i mean Oh, okay. All right. So, so four, the four gallons is ample then. It, it's ample, but in comparison of touring capabilities, the Tiger takes the cake. It, it just has much more range. Right. Interesting. You know, and with, you know, going back to the riding position on the XR, again, higher rear sets. So you have a little bit more ground clearance as well. Um, on the Tiger, I was scraping foot pegs. Um, you do have to be a little bit cognizant of that fact. Whereas in the XR, that's not really something I, I, I would do, you know, apart from going for the, to the racetrack or something like that. I, I, I didn't touch foot peg all day on the BMW, but uh, yeah. And, and this really, again, drives the, the points home for each bike. You know, you have the XR, which comes at things from the, again, the road uh, bias side, which really does speak to that sportiness that you'd find in a 17 inch wheeled motorcycle. Whereas the Tiger really capitalizes on that touring, you know, DNA that's, that's built into it. So, you know, with comfort, you know, comes better wind protection. You have a manually adjustable windscreen that despite its size, it works amazingly well. I mean, it's slim, it's attractive, it looks cool. And you think like, oh, it's probably not going to do all that much. No, it works great. I'm at 510 and I got wind protection, even in the lowest setting, I popped it up probably like three quarter to the maximum height. And it just gives you tons of wind protection. So again, with that uh, fuel range, the added wind protection, the Tiger is really going hard in the paint with the, uh, the touring aspects. Whereas the, the XR does have a little windscreen. It takes some wind blast off your chest, but it's kind of about it. Interesting. What about um, equipment? Do they come with bags or, or anything like that for touring? No, so those those are going to be optional accessories. Um, I will say in, for the BMW, if you are going to get the official accessory bags for the motorcycle, 
those things are actually integrated into the subframe. So the locking mechanism and things like that. Whereas the Tiger uses a little substructure. It has a bracket that you need to bolt onto the motorcycle. And when the bags are taken off, you can just stare at this unattractive looking bracket, which is <laughs> never that nice. Right. Whereas on the BMW, you know, all of its locking mechanisms and stuff like that is integrated in. Right. So that's something that I actually do appreciate a lot. Yeah, I thought the days of, you know, frames for bags were well behind us. No, they're they're still they're still kicking. <laughs> yeah, apparently so. Yeah, because I was I was looking at it because Don was he's the one that actually brought that up. He was like, yeah, the tiger bags suck. The bags themselves are actually good. Like they're nice steel, everything's sturdy. But you take the bags off and like, man, this frame fucking blows, man. It's like, <laughs> it, it like it just looks like shit. Because <laughs> the bike overall is attractive. You're like, oh, this thing actually looks pretty sweet. Like, but without the bags. So if you do decide to get the bags, make sure you just leave them on the bike. Yeah, forever. Okay. Um, it, it's just one of those things where like, they really could have done this better. Like, you know, the, um, the Ninja 1000. Right. Everything's integrated in, you know, it's, it just snaps into the subframe Sure. on the BMW. It's mounting system replaces one of the little side panels, but the mounting brackets look like they could be a part of the subframe. You'd be like, Oh, it's kind of a strange design for a subframe, but it looks normal, I guess. But it, it's not like you just see these awful protruding aluminum things, but yeah, overall, you know, that's, that's the gist of it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that sounds, that sounds interesting. I mean, did you have a preference over, over one of the bikes or how would you recommend if somebody's in the market for one of these two, how would you recommend them sort of choosing between them? You know, to kind of sum it up, um, I would say it really just comes down to what you want out of a motorcycle. Um, the F900XR is really going to speak to that person that does lean a little bit more heavy on the sports side of things. If you do want to do some serious distance on a Sunday or you want to commute and get a lot of mileage out of your bike, the F900XR isn't going to let you down. Um, but you're going to be doing it probably at a little bit faster pace, have a little bit more fun in the canyons in terms of just you know general sportiness. And that bike is really going to appeal to you. It, it, to me, it comes off more as a traditional sport tour to where the word sport is in bold. Tour is tacked on. So, <laughs> right. Okay. You know, and, and not the way that we say like the, the Aprilia Tuono V4 is a sport tour where sport is not only bold, but also in neon lights. And then tour is in the fine print. But, um, you know, the, the Tiger is your traditional sort of adventure touring machine where it has more creature comforts. It allows you to just be more comfortable for a longer period of time. The saddle is softer, it's lower to the ground. Yes, it's not sporty. It doesn't speak to that sort of hooligan nature, but it does have a pretty exciting engine. So as sensible as it is, it's still got a little flair in it. But really, if you're of the touring mindset, the Tiger is going to be your steed. Right. Okay. So uh, did you end up with a preference? Well, my personal preference would be the Tiger, um, despite the fact that I am super heavy on everything sport related. 
I just felt like I could live with the tiger and, and it was, it would just be, you know, my go-to in, in the garage sort of deal. Um, but that's personal preference. Now I don't speak for everyone. So that's why, you know, I'd like to highlight the sort of personality differences between the two. All right. Well, Hey, thanks. I really appreciate it as always. Um, appreciate you coming up with that. I think it's a real interesting comparison. So uh, I've enjoyed, enjoyed hearing the differences between them. I think it's a great one. Okay, cool. All right. Thank you, sir. In this next segment, contributing editor, Neil Bailey introduces us to his Laverda project. Laverda is one of the storied Italian brands that sadly disappeared some time ago. But in the 1970s, Laverda was alive and well, and some iconic motorcycles came out of that factory. Neil chats with me about resurrecting one of the first motorcycles he acquired and the stories that are woven into the fabric of that machine. Okay, the... Nuts and bolts of it is it's a 1978 Laverda 1200 Mirage. It actually is a Slater Brothers green Mirage. Okay. So, in I, the I only ever heard of the Jota. Correct. 1000cc triple. Correct. That was done by the Slater Brothers in England in the 70s, and they named it the Jota. Yes, three-legged dance in Spanish. Right. Well, so, the Slater Brothers took a 3CL, or Jarama, and they put in four C cams, rear sets, drop Tomaselli drop bars, free breathing pipes, jetted up the carburetors, put the rear sets, and created the Jota. Right. And it is the most iconic Laverda, possibly outside of the V6 or the SFC 750 race bikes. But I think most right. people know the Jota. Sure. What a lot of people don't know is after the Jota, the Slater brothers went to Italy and got together with all the importers, and they created the Mirage. And I guess they went to a think tank in Italy and they came up with the idea of it. And they took a 1200 um, triple that was, it basically was a, you know, overboard right. thousand, 1116 cc's. I can't, I think it was a TTL, so I can't remember what it's called. But so what they did was they jotarized a Mirage. So they, the Jota had a 10 and a half to one compression ratio. Right. Which is one of the hop-ups that they did from the Jarama or the 3CL to give it that Jota muscle and power. Um, the 1200 Mirage had a very lowly 8 to 1 compression ratio. So it was an overboard Jota with a low compression ratio. Same chassis and... Same, same everything was the same. Okay. But, you know, conservative foot pegs, upright bars, okay. you know, restricted exhaust pipes, air filter jetted down carburetors, just a kind of a mild-mannered 1200. And the Slater brothers created the Mirage. They put the Jota bars, Jota rear sets, 40 cams, free-breathing pipes, removed, gutted the airbox, jetted the carburetors. Nice. And left the compression ratio alone. So you had this very bike that would pull really well off the bottom end, unlike a Jota, but it would breathe fire more on the top end. So it was a Jota on steroids, essentially. Yes, and yeah, kind of. Had a different tank. Um, but it, mine, must been, it must have been faster than a Jota. I don't know. Head to head, that's a good question. If you ever put, don't know if any, someone like Nolan Woodbury would know the answer to that, probably. Um, okay. Yeah, I don't know. But it, was, it wasn't a cult 
bike the way the Jota was. Right. It came and it went, and if you just asked, sort of the, the moment passed kind of thing. Yeah, and I think it was a technically called a green mirage. Okay. Um, I was slated about this green mirage. Well, I had grown up in England in the, the town of Tor Torquay or Paynton, Torquay area, Torbay, and as a young retrobate on my little Japanese motorcycle, a guy called Nick Roskelly was a biker. He had a bike shop. <laughs> right. It was actually, you know, it was kind of in a cave. It was. It was one of those garages that sat under a cliff with a bunch of row of houses above it. It was very dank and very dark. And he was a British biker. They were you know, kind of like men and we were boys. So they, <laughs> right. you know, had the, they were like the older generation. And one day I remember riding past Nick's garage and looking through the window and I saw this huge black powder coated frame with this big engine with the heads and the barrels off it and it was the Laverda and Nick had come across the bike it's a 1978 he came across it around 1980 and it had been left in a shed and suffered water damage oh, okay it was in a leaky shed how a brand new bike ended up in a leaky shed so I watched Nick bring this thing back to life, and it had a ended up with a funky paint job, this three-into-one exhaust. So it had never been used then? It had never been, it wasn't the used Must have been fairly low miles. Okay. I, Nick had the heads and barrels off. He had to put new piston rings in it, redid the heads. Okay. He had to powder coat the frame. I don't know if he needed to or he wanted to. Um, I could ask him okay. because we're still in communication, but it did have a powder coated black frame. Right. And right. he put his funky paint job and so I watched this thing go from a frame with the bottom end of an engine to a running bike, and I used to see Nick riding around um, painting on this bike. And of course, I, I've graduated from an SL125 Honda to an XT500. Eventually, I got to riding a Moto Guzzi 850 Le Mans. So I was, you know how we had that right. rite of passage in That progression, in yeah, yeah. Something that's so different to here in America, where they just jump on a big bike and go, and we had to serve our time and take our tests and get our licenses. And well, also in in England, the roads are so much smaller and twistier yes. that that a big bike small, is not smaller bikes don't feel too onerous. Mm -mm. They feel relatively natural. I mean, mm. uh, you know, for a long time, I had I had a two fifty for a long time. I then had a you know a Suzuki five fifty before I graduated to big bikes. And it all felt felt fairly natural. Um, but of course- It was you know, a rite of passage, wasn't it? You were maturing, you yeah. were getting older, you needed more money for insurance. I mean, yeah. you, you worked your way through the progression to your big bike. Yeah, and there was no stigma with riding a smaller bike or an entry level bike. It was, we were all just riding motorcycles and having a great time. Mm. Um, it was quite interesting, but yeah. Very different philosophy here where they sort of go down to the deal and jump on a thousand with no experience and no license. Right, yeah. I'm not sure that it's that, I don't think it's necessarily a geographical thing. I think it's more of a generational thing. Mm. I'd be willing to bet in England nowadays people go down and-, and Although in England now it's even more strict. You have to spend two oh, years, on, you have to spend two years on a 12 horsepower 125 and a much wow. more vigorous testing system before you're allowed to get your L plates on. Wow. So you really, really, and even if you're older, you can't, you still have to go through the, I think you might have not have to spend the two years, but you still have to go through the, the qualification process. Wow. Yeah, Europe's a lot stricter on the licensing. Yeah. And then I think they have to stop at 400 maybe to go on. Wow. So it's actually stricter than when we were young, because we were allowed a 250 when we were kids. Right, right. They knocked it back, so. Right. But even, I mean, in those days, I mean, we had, we had two strokes 
Yeah. So of course, you know, small CC still equal serious. Two fifty two stroke with expansion pipes and Boyce and Reeds on those shitty tires and brakes that we had. I remember when the uh, the Suzuki X seven came out in oh, the, they would hit the 100 late, miles an hour. late seventies, and that was supposedly the first hundred mile an hour two fifty. And we all got oh. really excited about that. Oh, oh yeah. Because we all had 250s that could do sort of high 90s, but nobody could quite crack that, ton. that magic 100 mile an hour. Oh, do you remember those things it's with like, a set oh, of expansion X7s pipes? It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the coffin tank Yamaha came out, you know, the RD400. Mm. That thing was seriously fast. Mm. And then, mm. of course, you know, the LCs, the over here, the RZs, aren't they? You know, the RZ250 and 350, the liquid-cooled Yamahas, Monoshock, oh, my God. Mm. But anyway, sorry, I digress. But you, but, but you look back at those things now. You know, yeah. Niall McKenzie, the ex MotoGP rider, I follow him on Twitter. Yeah. He's got an old LC. That apparently, he's just getting it tested. It must be old enough to not need an MOT in tax anymore. And they had that Prodi series, production racing series. Yes. That's, that's how McKenzie got his start. Yeah. Those things had 28 horsepower. <laughs> that's all you they put know? out. Right, but in the day you thought this was... And the RD350 LC only put out 28, 28 horsepower. I think. It, I mean, don't... I mean, I'm not 100% sure, but I think if my memory serves me right, they only make like 28 horsepower. Wow. Yeah. But that was where guys like, you know, Jamie Whittam and Kenny Irons and those kind of guys came out of... I'm sure with, of with head work and pipes and reeds, they were probably making more, but... Yeah, yeah. but those were like stock bikes. At those the start still, of each, yeah, they, At the start of each race, they would have the bikes all lined up. And they would have, they'd they'd get, get a key. And they'd have a hat. Yeah. With the keys in. And, and you pulled a key out of the hat yeah. and then went and raced it. And there is a lovely and YouTube documentary. banging stuff. There's a lovely YouTube documentary about all those guys getting together and doing it again, if you want to search it out. Oh, they? really? Yeah, they went and rebuilt it. They, found, they went all over Europe scouring parts and built a whole pile of them and brought all those people back to race again. <laughs> it's really fun. That's awesome. Anyway, I digress. So, so the Laverda, right? Okay. Back to the Laverda. So I see Nick riding around on the Laverda. I'm, you know, I'm pretty broken poor at this point and and what what year is this it's 81 81, okay so the bike is only a couple of years old yes but it's being completely rebuilt you know it's not looking like a stock bike at all okay had a so anyway somehow i end up buying the bike it's all a little bit vague (laughs) um it Probably was through some sort of nefarious activity. <laughs> right, you had to you know. pay for it in kind. <laughs> it was something that went on with, somehow I got the money, bank right. loans, right. selling some weed, doing some something or other, putting some roofs on. There was something happened that I ended up, so I ended up with the Laverda. Right, okay. And, um, you know, I just remember it was, it was a pretty good tool for pulling the birds back in those days. Oh, sure. And I think in big bike. I mean, I think in hindsight, bike. it wasn't my good looks and charm and talent. I just think the idea of a bit of damp, mediocre passion with me back at my place was more appealing than another ride on the Laverne. <laughs> 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 but it would, it would, it would hit 120 on the clock down the bypass with somebody on the back. Nice. And it would hit 140 on the clock solo. That was quite and fast for it, those days. It breathed fire. It has the 180 crank, you know, sucking damp seaside air through this filterless carburetor, blowing it out of this Harris three into one pipe. With this off syncopated oh. exhaust tone, three mm. cylinder inline triple exhaust note. Yeah, so I mean, you know, we were just, you know, 
it was funny because Mark Williams was the sort of the gonzo journalist of the day, and Mark Williams and uh, Colin Schiller, um, the guy that went on to start Fast Bikes, this was the transition where motorcycle journalism went from being like a technical manual to a lifestyle. Right. And I'll always remember the time I got to Laverta, Mark Williams used to ride around London on a Jota. So, of course, the Jota was always the cult bike. We were always the... Right. Yeah, you know, we were... You know, I grew up with Torquay United in the fourth division, so I was never top shelf. So the, even the 1200 was like... It, it wasn't like I got a Jota and I was one of the cool kids. I was... It was <laughs> we never quite got to the top rung of the ladder. So Mark Williams is running around London on a Jota and writing for magazines. and We're just damp potheads on the dole in England scratching around stealing shit to put petrol in our old motorcycles. <laughs> right. And he wrote this wonderful piece in the magazine. He said, we desired to ride around endlessly on high-powered motorcycles taking more drugs than Keith Richards. <laughs> <laughs> and this was like the gospel to us as kids. All right. This was what we wanted to be, you know, endlessly riding around on high-powered motorcycles taking more drugs than Keith Richards. <laughs> right. So this wow. was the goal. So, yeah, so I spent this period of time riding around on the Laverda and it blew holes in the exhaust pipe, it broke battery went, the starter motor went, it fell off the side stand, you know, just things happened. And then in 1984, I parked it in my mother's garage and came to America for the first time. And that was when I indulged in the Wibbly Wedgie Chronicles, which you can right. find <laughs> online, and hitchhiked around America and lived with a bank robber and ended up in Central America dealing money on the black market and all that. <laughs> You know, right. <laughs> the kind of stuff that just as you right, do, yeah, right? Yeah, all the stuff that as you do, yeah. All right, yeah. fair enough. I don't know. It, it, it's, it's interesting because uh, one of the things that happened in, in Nicaragua is, and, and I kind of I hesitate to use the word terrorist because it really has this sort of horrible connotation to it, but I don't know how else to describe it. it was, I was sharing a hotel bathroom with a guy called Uka Yutar, and Uka had, he had, tear gas 15 federal agents in Winston-Salem escaped to Nicaragua and was seeking political asylum. <laughs> and he had been, he had a pretty handy little, he was a fairly entrepreneurial, so he'd been flying guns and drugs between Guatemala and Winston-Salem. Oh my God. Yeah, so anyway, I end up sharing a hotel bedroom with him and trucking around while he's trying to seek political asylum. <laughs> and I remember going to the bathroom one Did he we, get it? I don't know. I, I, Lost contact. We would only spend a day or two with Uka. He drank so much. I mean, it was just, you know, <laughs> we couldn't handle Uka. Right. But I do remember going to the bathroom one morning. He was bent over cleaning his teeth in his little undies, and his whole back looked like a chicken. The skin was all really gnarled up. I go, Jesus, what? Uka, what the fuck happened to you? And he was, oh, man, I got shot down in Guatemala one time, and the plane caught fire, and by the time I slumped over the steering wheel, and by the time they pulled me out, I was all burnt up the backside. Oh, my God. Yeah, this guy was pretty wild. Wow. So anyway, but I digress. So that trip ended, and um, I was out of money and sick and, and uh, you know, been on the road for about six months all through Canada and, and America and you know, living with bank robbers and war zones and getting shot at and falling in love and all that good stuff. So my <laughs> sister was getting married in Scotland. I thought, well, I'd better go back to Scotland for my sister's wedding. Right. So I managed to get myself back to Scotland um, flew through America, managed to get a visa to get through, to get a ticket to get out, because I didn't know if I had enough money. Right. And somehow they didn't charge my credit card in Nicaragua, so I was able to get to London. I hitchhiked to Torquay, broke into my mother's house, borrowed a car for a bit, got on a plane, went to my sister's wedding. And uh, 
came back and of course continued to ride around on the Laverda. So the Laverda was all running just fine? It was fine, just left it at my mother's for six months, yeah. Got okay. an MOT on it, put a battery in it and off we off went. Off you went, mm -hmm. okay. So then um, I had a very quick stunting career, um, <laughs> which ended the night I flipped a CBX 550 and I broke my sternum, um, cracked some ribs, <laughs> cherried my pelvis and thigh. So I'm, I'm British winters coming in, um, the Laverda's, you know, can't ride the Laverda because I have all these broken bones in my chest. I'm sort of coughing blood and swallowing narcotics and, you know, <laughs> feeling a bit, feeling a bit sorry for myself. second hand. <laughs> you know, drinking tea and eating rich tea bickies and, right. you know, wondering what to do in my life. And I get a phone call from America. Well, Jimmy, the bank robber, um, had been caught by this time and was... Who was Jimmy, the bank robber? He was my roommate in Florida. Oh, okay. All right. So remember I said when I was in America on this first trip. Right. The reason I went to Central America was my roommate Jimmy decided he wanted to rob a bank. Oh, shit. So I, in my infinite wisdom, left the country two days before the robbery because I thought... I really don't a... want to be part of that. Well, yeah, because I mean, I'd helped him out a bit, you know. I was <laughs> right. drawing some plans, fixing the bike, staking it out, you know. Yes, you do. I mean, you've got to help your roommate out, right? You've got to help your mate. But, so, but yeah, let's try not to blot the copybook too much, shall we? So. So yeah, so I sort of wake up one day and think, you know, maybe this bank robbery thing is not for me. So <laughs> I, I fly to Miami, hop a one-way ticket to Belize, and I overlanded down to Belize, Guatemala, Salvador, Honduras, into Nicaragua. And of course, this is the Banana Republic day. So, right. you know, I've never seen machine guns going off. I've never been shot at. I've never been in a truck while two sides of the people are shooting at each other. So there's a whole lot of stuff going on wow. down there. But so back to Jimmy, um, Jimmy bank, bank robber. Okay. So I'm laying on the couch with my mother's after all of this and the phone rings and it's Jimmy. So he is in the Manatee County Jail, Bradenton, Florida. And he's <laughs> on a thing called work release. Because the bank robbery hadn't gone so well and he got He'd caught. been caught. Okay. So it was an inside job with the girl, Julie. So it's a very weird thing because during the day he went out to work and in the evenings he went back to jail waiting to get arraigned to go to the big house. Huh. Don't ask me what was going on. So the prosecuting agent is a guy called Lieutenant Herbert Van Fleet. Okay. So you have to think for just a moment that I'd lived with Jimmy all the way up until the bank robbery. <laughs> so when they caught him and went and interviewed everybody in the neighborhood, which I'm sure they did, right? Right. There's a missing Englishman, right? Okay. Right? Right. I'd been living with him for months. Okay. So suddenly there's a missing Englishman. Well, Jimmy Van Fleet's pressuring him to give up the getaway driver. But Jimmy won't give up the getaway driver because it actually was crazy laughing Dave Wainwright, his brother-in-law. Okay. And but he's not they assumed it was the missing Englishman. Presumably because I was living with him at the time and I disappeared right. at the same time. The robbery was very out. easy to add two and two and come up with 96. Right. right. So Jimmy says, hey, do you want a job? You can come live with my brother. I'll get you a job. And oh, I'm lying on the couch, you know, all broken up. I said, sure. So as soon as I was able to get up and move, buddy of mine, Lee Furnival, we used to call him Furry Balls, 
<laughs> you know how we had nicknames at home. Right. <laughs> he, he rode Nortons and BSAs. Ferry was always a British bike rider. He <laughs> had this job painting this house. So I remember stuffing my left arm in my jacket to hold my ribs together, two stories up a ladder in the damp English winter with a pot of paint and a brush painting skirting boards and gutters, you know, just, just hating life. Just trying to earn enough money. Yeah, so I scratched 300 bucks together. Right. Park the Laverda. We are still talking about the Laverda. We are still talking about the Laverda. I parked the Laverda and hitchhiked to London, buy a one-way ticket to New York, land in New York with 100 bucks and the bottle of Johnny Walker Red, and hop on a bus to Florida to go meet with Jimmy the Bank Robber. Okay. So the Laverda is now at my mother's. It's okay. 1985. It's parked. I, I winterized it, covered it in WD-40, pulled a battery and shot oil down the spark plug holes and put it on some stands and all this stuff. Right. Well, the coolest part of the whole thing is Jimmy has gone to work for a construction company out of Arkansas called Jeezy Irvin. Now, this is how you know this is a true story, because as an Englishman, you could never make this up. Right. So the company is run by four siblings, Gary Zane, Garrel Zine, Harmon Dean, and Myrtle Levine. Oh, my God. <laughs> so I go to live with Jimmy's brother, Bill, in a single-wide trailer in Ruskin, where the circus comes in Florida for the winter. Right. And it's run by a lady called Helen with one tooth. And it's... <laughs> Helen one tooth. <laughs> so I'm living in a single wide. I'm sleeping on a couch that I can't even lay down full thing on because it's too small. And living out of a backpack, working five days a week for GZ Irvin doing block and concrete work and working on the weekends at a flea market to raise money to go traveling. And so GZ Irvin do block and concrete work. Well, Jeezy Irvin happened to be building Lieutenant Herbert Van Fleet's new house. Oh. Okay. So in this bizarre twist of events, I end up building the house of the prosecuting agent who's looking for me in the bank robbery case. And you couldn't make that shit up. Wow. So that's my big story of the bank robber. Okay. Well, I mean, just as an aside, digressing from the Laverda. Right. Did Van Fleet catch up with you and you were able to say, no, 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 it wasn't me. No. I was out of the country. No. So what I did was I had to tell everybody on the job site, if he ever shows up, don't speak to me because he'll hear my English accent. So when he showed, <laughs> when he showed up on the job site, I was just long-haired, covered in concrete dust, shorts and work boots. I was just another redneck laborer. I would always scuttle off to the other side of the job site and start bending a rebar or carrying a block and keeping out of the way. And I have this amazingly vivid memory that it's got very confused now. But why but was, did you want to hide? Why didn't you just want to just go oh, up and just clear your name? Yeah, right. I'm working illegally. I'd been illegally living with a drug dealer and a bank robber. Yeah, gonna, right, mean, okay. Right, yeah, okay. This, this is not going to end well. Right? Okay, yeah. So, okay, yeah, I just right. I thought staying out of the way was the best medicine. Right, okay. But I remember the day he came onto the job site. And it's one of those things, you know, I think we've talked about this in some of the stuff we talked about. You have these moments that just seem like moments in a movie or things that you can't ever forget. This blacked out window Lincoln Continental came rolling onto the job site and out steps Van Fleet. 
and he's got the suit on with the white big collar, the Ray-Bans, the slick back hair and the tie. Is he wearing a Stetson? No, but the problem is my <laughs> memories have got muddled between the Pink Floyd Wish You Were Here album cover where the guy's the suit with the flames on his back right. and that swarthy pock-faced detective that they had on American television in the 80s. Okay. And they've merged together to create my memory of Van Fleet, so I can't quite remember it. Right, okay. But I just remember him getting out of the car with these, he had his gun and these sunglasses. And I was like, oh my God, this is like a fucking movie. <laughs> right. and, I, you know, and he comes over to Jimmy and he pats him on the belly. And Jimmy was kind of a bit cartoonish. He wasn't a very macho looking, aggressive Bank. character. He just As was, bank robbers go, he was fairly benign. Yeah, and I just remember Van Fleet, Van Fleet, patting Jimmy on the belly and going, yep, we'll soon get that off you when we get you inside. <laughs> and I'm just bending rebar and hoping no one speaks to me, you know. <laughs> so that's kind of the whole, you know, it's just this really pivotal moment in my life story is that, you know, here I am building the house of the prosecuting agent who's looking for me in the case of the bank robbery. So Did he ever find out? that? No, no, never did. No, no I talked to Jimmy the other day. He has, he's kind of old, getting old now. He's got COPD from smoking too much dope and we don't know if Van Fleet would even be alive anymore. Probably not. Because he was an older gentleman then and I was in my 20s. But right. So anyway, suffice to say that Laverda was at my mother's and that particular journey then went on for four years. So I didn't go back to England for four years. I ended up riding to Alaska, going through Southeast Asia, riding motorcycles around Australia, got married and did all this stuff. So I went back to England late 80s, early 90s and rode the Laverda one summer, and then finally decided it's time to bring it to America. Nice. Okay. So boxed it up, shipped it to America, did a light restoration, rode it around for a couple of years. Right. And then while I was at the motorcycle shop that I had worked on building the bikes to go to Peru, I met Father Gio. Okay. I got drunk one night and decided I'd take it to bits and restore it, which was, you know, I have the mechanical ability of a squashed frog. Okay. So it was the dumbest idea in the world. So anyway, this was 1995. So suffice to say, the Laverda is still in pieces. <laughs> now, in my defense, it's only 25 years. <laughs> Fine wine takes a while to age, right? So I... Why, why did you take it to pieces? Just Because I got drunk. I was going to restore it. I had a bad rattle okay. in the engine. Oh, okay. All right. I had a knock. I had a real bad knock. Okay. It wasn't so it, running so it, right. did need, it needed to work. It right. did, yeah. It had been in the sea air at my mother's for years without running. And yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't healthy. It was smoking and rattling. Okay. All right. So anyways, between 1995 and about 2018, I you know, schlepped this thing around in boxes. You know, place to place to place. Everywhere I went, the Laverda went. I always had this idea, oh, I'm going to restore it, I'm going to restore it. Right. And um, so after Neil Bailey Rides in 2013, I went through some uh, some very hard times. And you know, without sort of getting into too much detail, I pretty much lost everything. And, and, and I was sat at my desk one night and, you know, just, I don't know, just very, very despondent with life. And, and right. I came across this video where this guy flies a drone across the beaches of Tor Bay, where I live, under the pier where we played as kids, all on the beaches that we scavenged for bottles to take back to get our candy money, and where we went swimming and took our first girlfriends, and all of this type of, right. all the houses and everything I knew. And this young English guy gave this beautiful narrative 
about Greek mythology says that all lives are threads in a vast tapestry. Right. And we are connected to everybody we've ever met and ever interacted with. Right. And no matter, and we're intrinsically connected to all, all of this. And no, matter, no matter how far we go, how much we change or how much we grow, we're always intrinsically connected to everyone we've ever met and our home. Right? Interesting. And as he said the word home and the drone flew over to this music, I just sat there and started crying. I said, I'm going home. And it's 35 years since I've lived in England. All this shit's gone on in my life from bank robberies to, you know, kids, divorce, life, broken bones. I mean, just all the shit that goes on in life. Right. right. And in that moment, I said, I'm going home. And I decided I'm going to restore the Laverda make this beautiful resto mod out of my bike, and that's not the big story. I'm shipping the Laverda home, and I'm gonna go around the home and tell the stories of my life and all the people that I've met in my life that I'm connected to in this tapestry that's created my life. With the Laverda as the- Laverda as the focal point the focal of going point, home. The sort of the center point. Which brings me to you and your story, which you don't want to tell, so I won't tell anyone. <laughs> Because our lives are intrinsically connected by the threads that have brought us together at press launches, you running my story for my show, and then your, obviously, your marriage and your life with TJ, which is, in my mind, it's a parallel type of story to my story. Right. And, Interesting. you know, you're very private, you don't want to tell you, but it's a beautiful story. You have this passionate love affair with this lovely young girl in England, you ride motorcycles together, you do all this crazy stuff. You break up, you leave for America, she ends up in Australia, and 35 years later, you're both living lives that you don't feel are fully fulfilled. Somehow through social media you connect, you go to Australia, you fly out there with a ring in your pocket, you haven't seen her two minutes, you propose marriage, and now you've been married and you're traveling around America together. Yeah. This is the same story I'm telling. Well, th thanks for not telling that, I appreciate it. But that. I'm not gonna tell the okay. viewers that you did that, right? <laughs> See how clever I was about not telling I anyone? I do, no, I see what you so did no there. So no one has a yeah, clue no, I, that I you married you your that. high school sweetheart, <laughs> yeah. you're living this wonderful life together, and you were apart right. for 36 years. Right. Luckily and this didn't all tell clearly anyone. goes back to the Laverda. Well, it does. Right. Because I remember when you told me the story, and I said, this is absolutely brilliant. And you said, yeah. And, and so at the same time I'm bombing around England on my Laverda, you're bombing around Europe on a GT750 with your now wife, who was then your girlfriend, who was riding her Kawasaki 400. Right. And I remember saying to you, I said, oh, when I make my documentary, you need to come to Torquay and tell a story. Wouldn't it be great if, you, if we could find your old bike? And you say, well, my buddy's got it. I could go get it anytime I want. Right. So, when I, so the whole Laverda idea for me, one of the biggest components of when I go to England to make Going Home the documentary, I totally want you and TJ to come riding in from London on your bikes and tell your story because that's the threads of my life. Right. That's such, that's such an interesting idea. Yeah, so that's what the Laverda project it, is. Right. Okay. That's great. It's quite, I mean, on a sort of a more, you know, sort of overview level, it's quite interesting how non-motorcycle people when they ask you, you know, what is it you like about motorcycles or, or what have you, 
and, and it's obvious to say, well, you know, they go fast, they're high performance, or, you know, I like the freedom that it, it you know. But, but all that aside, if you're, if you're into motorcycles, there's this sort of weird thread how they run through through your life. I mean, and if somebody, if somebody in the motorcycle community is a wanker, they get kicked out of the motorcycle community. You can't be in there and be a knob end, right? Right, that's true. Because you true. just get ostracized when, really quickly. You have to be genuine to be in the group, essentially. Yeah, yeah. and when, when people talk about, you know, and I, and I used to say, oh yeah, you know, sort of motorcycles are in my blood. Well, my blood, I mean, due to various crashes over the years, my blood has been changed several times. I've had several complete flush outs. So mm. I can honestly say that motorcycles are not in my blood. I think they are woven into our DNA. Mm. I mean, it just, it's deeper than that. And, and I think that's exactly what I want to get at with this documentary. The Laverda Project. Yeah, I mean, and I, don't, I don't want to be too grandiose about it, but I think about this and I think, you know, when was the last really, really impactful documentary about motorcycles that people will talk about? It was on, on any Sunday. And there's been, right. there's been a lot of different documentaries that have come along. And obviously, you, you want to aim to have the best work of your life. And I feel like I want this to be the best work of my life, where this idea of these threads and these tapestries and people and coincidences all come and together all in one place. these just, stories just all lead back to different things and all these yeah. threads. And maybe it only works to people our age that are looking back. But maybe young people would look at it and see there's an inspiration in your story. Well, I think young people can look at and, and say, well, wait a minute, I can see how, you know, what I'm doing now could lead to something in the future and, mm. you know, and the, the motorcycle that's part of them. And I think a lot, of, a lot of young people nowadays, we've got this, you know, situation of, you know, recessions and massive student debt and nobody's got any money. And, and a lot of people are buying these old bikes that you and I kind of grew up with. Mm. I know a lot of young people are getting old 1970s and early 80s old beaters, old Japanese beaters, and they're bobbing them and, you know, buying a couple of cans of barbecue black and, you know, they're wrapping the exhaust pipes and making them work. See, that, and there's all this history built into But that, that to me is a dual-edged sword because they end up putting 10 grand into a bike to go to the coffee shop. No, they're not putting 10 grand into it. I'm being facetious, no, no, no. but you know no, what I'm saying? No, no, no. They're not going anywhere on them. Oh, I not, think I th that's my point. I think a lot of them are. Are they? Well, yeah, I, I think so. I think they're taking these old beater bikes because it's all that they can afford. Yeah. They don't have any money. So instead of having just this horrendous, um, you know, sort of old bike, they'll tart it up as best they can with a couple of rattle, rattle, mm. rattle cans of, you know, matte black paint and, you know, a little bit of spit and polish and they'll cut the various ugly bits off and ride off down the road and go mm. off and have some adventures. And I think that's what it's about. I think young people are out there building the adventures that we're now reminiscing about. Mm. Mm. Um, certainly, we know of a couple of young people that are doing that. And that have yeah, that. I guess I get, I've been a little bit too... Look, turning up at a show and seeing someone that's got 10 grand and a CB550 that you could eat your lunch off. And I think, well, I rode one of those from Florida to Alaska. You know, yeah, no, no, no. I'm not talking about people that are, are restoring yeah. them. Or yeah, yeah. Them. I'm talking about people that are buying a bike for a few hundred bucks, oh, maybe fantastic. putting a maybe putting another hundred bucks into it and go ride most, the thing. Yeah, and yeah. then going off and having some adventures. Mm. But I mean, I remember when you know back in the '70s with us. I mean, we had no money. I mean, there was 
we bought this old beater of a Goldwing. I think it must have been, it was probably a 76 maybe. Um, bought this old beater of a Goldwing and um, I put like a little handlebar fairing on it. We had it serviced to the best of our ability, which was not much, and just took off on it. And it was only when we got all the way through France, through Switzerland, down into Italy, down to uh, just past Rimini, to a little place called Porto Reconati, we stood there and looked at each other and suddenly realized Who that are you with? TJ. Oh, okay, yeah. And we, we just strapped our tent on it and, <laughs> yeah. you know, we had the kettle hanging off the back and just a few... And we get down to Porto Reconati and suddenly looked at each other and thought, oh, shit, we've got absolutely... I, I think we had about 20, 20 bucks on us, you know, 20 quid... And we had enough money on the credit card just to buy gas to get us back to London. But we had nothing else. And we, and for some reason, it didn't particularly alarm us. So mm. we were standing on this sort of, on this little road next to this deserted beach. And there was a little fish restaurant there. And TJ was like, oh, well, yeah, let me go off and talk to that guy that owned. So she went off and met this guy Angelo, Angelo the fisherman who owned the little fish restaurant shack and he said oh don't worry about it just you know pitch a tent over there on the beach and if you help me fish in the mornings and help me pull the nets in I'll feed you at night. So that's how we lived for a couple of weeks so we just camped there for a couple of weeks. We had no money just had a laugh we just had a great time and essentially every morning he'd get in his little rowing boat and had this giant long net with a couple of with a big rope at each end of it and he'd get in his rowing boat and he'd start to row out out into the ocean um actually it's the adriatic the adriatic sea but as he'd, he'd start to row out and he'd start his buddy would start feeding out the net out the back and he'd do this giant great U-turn, this 180-degree U-turn. So he'd end up 200 yards or 100 yards further down the beach with the other end of the rope. And a whole bunch of us would gather each end of the rope and we'd all, just a whole bunch of us would drag this freaking great net that was 100 yards off the beach and just pull this thing into the beach. Full of fish. Full of fish. And all sorts of assorted crap. And all the crap he'd throw back in and, and the stuff he wanted to keep. We'd go off to the fish restaurant and that was dinner. And it was freaking awesome. But I think... It was... I think this is so much what I want to be part of the Going Home documentary, is the yeah. stories like this. And I've thought this through. So, obviously... There's so many people in my life I want to show up in England when we're filming. Right. And what I want to do is I want everybody to have an opportunity to just fully tell a life story, no matter how long it takes. Right. The great part about the world we live in is we can record all of that and run it on the accompanying website. Right. So we can just live in perpetuity these great life stories. And then obviously for the documentary, we'll pull right. the bits that we need. But these are the type of messages that I would like to leave in the right. documentary. Well, I'm, I'm, the I'm, young not, I'm not sure. That, I'm not sure that that's a great story, but it, it is to me, to me and to her. I mean, it's a, it's a sort of a cherished memory. But I guess the message, the the greatness of it, is telling young people, just for heaven's sake, it doesn't matter. You don't need a lot of money. You don't need all this stuff. 
get yourself an old bike uh, and go off and build some memories. Build some experience and mm. build a memory. Because then when you're our age, you can be sitting there and saying, I remember way back when and we had a great time. Yeah, and I wrote... Sort I, of at the end of the day, when you finally go to your grave, we're all, it's all we've got is our memories. So go out and make some. And maybe that's why, you know, at, at the age that we're at now with this Pentimento, we're looking back on this. We're wanting to, to, to right. revisit this part of our life. Yeah. And I think for people our age, I mean, I've talked to a lot of people about this documentary idea, and some guys, ah, oh, yeah, I remember my Camaro in high school, or, you know, like, right. it didn't matter if you got in your Camaro in high school and the furthest you went was the next county over for a couple of days with your tent, or you right. put your thumb out and hitchhiked around the world. It was the fact that you broke out and went. Right. And I think that's yeah. what so the many people are age. Yeah. Is whatever you're breaking out. I mean, you know, Ted Simon is not going to look at my adventures as a youngster and be in, be awed with my world <laughs> right. travels, right? Because he right. he is the ultimate world traveler. You know, Jupiter's Ranulph travels, Fiennes sure. is not going to look at my adventures. And, sure, but they're all relevant to ourselves. Whatever our horizon is, it's our horizon, and the fact that. I think everybody, when they're young, strikes out. Maybe that's what young people will get from the documentary. Right. Hey, you know, we might be a bunch of old fossils to them now and just a boring bunch of old gits waffling on about some shit we did, but hopefully right. there is we'll, something in there we'll for them. will inspire them to go out and do, build something themselves. I wrote so, a, so what happened to the Laverda? Is it, has it been restored? Is it built? Is it so been? it's been one of those very challenging projects. So I started to develop a YouTube series about the restoration of it and um, got the crank out, got the, all the guts out of it, you know, vapor honed all the cases, polished all the cases, starting getting some bits. Um, COVID came along. Um, oh, okay. So I'm lot, you know, suddenly everything I do requires me to be moving and traveling so I couldn't make a living. So I sidestepped into doing, working on my YouTube channel and doing a show. I thought, well, this will bring us back to the Laverda. It didn't. So the Laverda's kind of parked at the minute. I built a whole room for it, started filming it. And I just, it's and going- where is it? It's in England right it's, now? No, it's still right here. Oh, it's, it's been in America since 92. Oh, okay. Yeah, oh, right. I bought it to Florida, remember, and restored it, and right, right, been right, schlepping okay. it around in boxes. Um, the right thing will happen. I'm just letting the universe do what it needs to do. Right. Um, and it will get told in its time because I want to do it. Right. You know, Neil Bailey Rides took me five years. Um, the Laverda Project have been on it for two or three years now. Very interestingly, this thread and tapestry that we talk about. So, um, you know Lance Oliver at Revzilla, the, sure. the, the commentary, lovely, lovely fellow, good friend of mine, peer right. in the industry to, to both of us. He encouraged me to write these two stories about the, the first one is how I got the Laverda, which I just told you. The second one is how I brought it to America. And these stories ended up on Facebook. A friend of mine from the days that remembers the Laverda when I was young found it, sent it to another friend, Simon, who I hadn't seen since 1996. And um, Simon now works in the Middle East. So anyway, that's how I ended up in the Middle East in February. Simon will be coming here um, in a couple of weeks. And we're actually going down to Barber to the Vintage Festival together. And um, he remembers riding on the Laverda. He remembers the bike. He's got stories to tell. 
He's got a currently got a GS twelve hundred. He <laughs> uh, he has a Bostrom replica with a Works nine ninety eight motor. He's got a Senna Monster. He actually sponsored a World Superbike team at one point. He's good friends with Paolo Giubbati and had this really wow. wild motorcycle life. I hadn't seen him since nineteen ninety six. I think I was telling the story, he was running some casinos in Bucharest, Romania for a Turkish gangster out of Istanbul, so he's had a very colorful life. <laughs> and so this thread is beginning to build. Right. And now I'm working with Simon, now we're still working. So I'm not worried about it. No, 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 no. No, like you say, the universe will sort it out and yeah. one day the Laverda will be able to take a picture and and say the Laverda. Yeah, and I think... Are you, are you planning to restore it back to its just I, original? No, Pepsi? no, it was... It or was you're doing, a, you talked about resto mod. Yeah, it was always mod? a mongrel. It was never stock. Okay. So I feel a resto mod is the way to go. All right. Modern suspension and wheels. Right, okay. Yeah. Original color? No, maybe, yeah, maybe the orange Laverda or the silver frame. That was kind of... So it'll look oh, visually... Oh, that's pretty... That's pretty you know, I remember I, being that's a, iconic, really. The, I was at Barber Vintage Festival one year and they had a an old 900 SS motor in a one of the 78, 79 era. In, but it looked it looked like an old one, but when you went there, it had all the modern stuff on it. Right. And it was this beautiful blend of the modern and old. And I thought, that's how I want my Laverda to be. I want you to kind of look at it from a distance and go, oh, it's a Jota or a Mirage. And then you get in closer and you realize, oh no, this has all been modernized. Cool. Because that was what we lusted after as kids. We, we did. Laverda was swing arms and trick suspension. I wish they'd bring the Lavertas back. Mm. These were, those were good-looking bikes, and really yeah. muscular. I mean, really, the sort I mean, of... To hear a 180 triple on full song is a blood-curdling experience. It really is. Yeah. They're really, really... It's, it's like no other sound. Yeah. So, yeah, I just think the time will come. The situation will be right. Yeah. You know, with COVID, we haven't been able to travel anyway. Sure. And I just want, you know, in my mind, in my dream, I mean, I see you riding in on your kettle. <laughs> the GT750. Yeah, and you have your time book. We have a beautiful house on the bay, going over Torbay in Brixham. You come for your few days. I take you on my favorite rides. I ride the Laverde. You ride your kettle. TJ's on a bike. And then we come back and we tell our stories. And then you leave. And my other friends come, some are friends from the day that lived in England, some are friends I've made from around the world. I have a very dear friendship, Dowerty, um, interesting character, would be good for your podcast. I mean, he did different things from launching the space shuttle to starting his own motorcycle clothing company. Right. He has a Jubilee Bonneville he bought when he was 16. Wow. He's our age, he still has it. Right. So he's gonna ship the Jubilee Bonneville to England, come to see me to tell stories on the bike that he's had since he was 16. That's awesome. And we've had a relationship for 15 years. So these are the types of things that sure. are going to happen, you know. And the Laverda will be the centerpiece for that. So, okay. So if anyone wants to send me 50,000 bucks to rebuild it, they'll get absolutely nothing in return. Excellent. Typical. I love it. How could you refuse an offer like that? I mean, it's right. brilliant, isn't it? It is brilliant. I restore Laverda. We go home and make a documentary. And what do they get? <laughs> they get the pleasure of watching it. All right. Thanks, Neil. Appreciate yes. it. I look forward... I look forward to seeing it.